Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode nine of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 89 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended July 28, 2018. Welcome. This week, I want to open up with a quote that was certainly the quote of the week and could well be a memorable quote of Trump's time in office. This is what he said this week, quote, just remember what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. He said that at a convention for veterans in Kansas City this week. We're going to be talking about Trump's continued moves to authoritarianism. But I thought the most noteworthy thing that happened this week were all the different cases and possible ends to Trump's time in office that moved forward this week. There are a number of threats that we've talked about in the Weekly List podcast of things that could end Trump's presidency early, and several of them had major developments during this past week. The first is the Emoluments Clause and the lawsuit will proceed that Trump violated the emoluments clauses. To put this in perspective, this is the first time in American history that a sitting president will face charges of violating the emoluments clauses. We are testing these clauses that were part of our Constitution, and this is proceeding forward for Trump continuing to operate his businesses and continue to profit off his presidency. So we'll be watching that. Number two were the Cohen tapes. This week we got to hear a conversation between Michael Cohen and Trump, and they were discussing payments to an ex-Playboy model, Karen McDougal, to silence her. And this happened months before the election. They were discussing that payment. So that payment could be construed as a campaign contribution, and it was not declared, and that would be illegal. That happened this week. Also Cohen-related, this week Michael Cohen asserted that Trump not only knew, but also approved of the June 9th meeting at Trump Tower between Donald Jr., Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, and a number of Russians and that Trump knew that the purpose of the meeting was to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. Something we kind of already knew. Let's not forget Trump's infamous tweet within a half hour after when we think that meeting concluded, asking Hillary about her 33,000 deleted emails. But the fact that now there's potentially a witness that will say that, that means Trump was knowingly part potentially here of a collusion, an attempt to alter our election. So we'll be keeping, we're gonna be talking more about that. Number four, the Mueller trial of Manafort will start this week. And I know it's a name we don't talk about and it's been kind of stringing along for so long. But on Tuesday, Paul Manafort, who was Trump's campaign manager, will stand trial. Mueller has said they might call up to 35 witnesses this first week, including Gates, who was also very involved not only in Trump's campaign, but also his transition, and is cooperating in the Mueller probe. 
We also learned this week about a new Russian oligarch we're going to be discussing as relates to Butina. Uh, so that is spreading, and we know that's something as well that Mueller is investigating. And number five, and this is drumroll please, Trump's bookkeeper for decades, someone who served for his father as well, was subpoenaed this week to appear before the grand jury in the Southern District of New York. Not only does this man keep track of all the payments that Trump made, but we're also aware this week that came out in the Wall Street Journal that he also prepared Trump's taxes during parts of the financial crisis. So that's a total of five major developments, five different plot lines that could spell the end of Trump's presidency. We're going to be discussing all of those. And then we're also going to be discussing what's happening with the migrant children. There was a deadline this week, and that deadline came and went, and it was Friday. Uh, the Trump regime claims they have met the deadline, even though between a third and a half of the children that they were meant to reunify have not been reunified and the horror stories continue. We're going to talk more about that this week. So before we get into all of those stories, I just want to lay out again Trump's moves towards authoritarianism, that shocking quote and setting up his alternative version of reality and telling people don't believe what you hear, don't believe what you read. This week, Trump also, and this is a hallmark of authoritarianism, was retaliating against those who criticize him. On Monday, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders announced that Trump is looking to take away security clearances for six former senior national security and intelligence officials who are critical of Trump over his Helsinki summit, some of these quotes we've talked about in the weekly list. The officials who served under both W. Bush and Obama include former CIA directors John Brennan and Michael Hayden, former FBI director James Comey, former NSA Susan Rice, and former DNI James Clapper, and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. Although Sanders says Trump has been looking into this for a while, Comey and McCabe already lost their security clearance when they were fired. This was actually an idea that was suggested by Rand Paul and then picked up on by Sarah Sanders. Experts say that while Trump probably does have the authority to unilaterally suspend or terminate a security clearance, no president has ever done so before. There's a practical purpose to them having security clearance for some period of time, and that is if there's a, any sort of crisis or a bit of advice that's needed by the people that currently have their job, it would be normal protocol for their past employees that had the same job to be able to interact with them and have some knowledge base to give advice and give credence to things that the other administration had done. So this is, again, not normal, and it's Trump just retaliating. Another example this week on Wednesday, the White House banned CNN reporter Caitlin Collins from attending a press conference with Trump in the Rose Garden. Press Secretary Sanders claimed Collins, quote, shouted questions and refused to leave. Hours earlier, Collins peppered Trump with questions about Michael Cohen and the Helsinki meeting with Putin, while Trump and European Commissioner President Jean-Claude sat for pictures, which is typical for pool reporters to do. In reaction to this banning, CNN said in a statement, quote, this decision to bar a member of the press is retaliatory in nature and not indicative of an open and free press, 
we demand better. The president of Fox News said in a statement, quote, we stand in strong solidarity with CNN for the right to full access for our journalists as part of a free and unfettered press. The White House Correspondents Association president said, quote, this type of retaliation is wholly inappropriate, wrongheaded, and weak. It cannot stand. Reporters ask questions to hold people in power accountable. So again, these are two important steps that Trump has taken this week alone. And it's part of this alternative reality that Trump continues to feed his supporters. And, and there was a story this week in the New York Times, perhaps himself, that Trump had a tirade because Melania had the TV in Air Force One tune in to CNN. He told his staff that all the TVs should only be on Fox. And also reported by the New York Times that Trump is increasingly living in a world of select information abetted by aides who insulate him from the outside world as he bends the truth for his own narrative. For now, his approval with Republicans remains high. So he's been getting away with that. But let's talk about what else is happening in the Trump regime, because part of the list, the reason that the list is so long each week is because there are many hands at play deconstructing our fragile democracy. And in the chaos each week, many of these stories get very little attention. Washington Post reported documents released by the Interior Department under the Freedom of Information Act and retracted a day later show that Secretary Zinke uh, requested to shrink national monuments last year. Important evidence was dismissed. Zinke and aides ignored information that public sites boosted tourism and, and spurred archaeological discoveries, focusing instead on logging, ranching, and energy development that would be unlocked. On Tuesday, federal labor, labor mediators advised the Education Department that had, it had engaged in, quote, bad faith bargaining when it implemented a contract this year that got compensation and benefits provisions. The department also limited its 3,900 employees' ability to carry out union duties during the day. Mediators say curtailing workers' protections and access to union representation is in violation of federal law. Also in the Education Department, on Wednesday, Secretary DeVos proposed ending Obama-era policies which eased access to loan forgiveness for students defrauded by for college, for-profit colleges. The Trump regime's new rules would require borrowers to, provide, to prove they had fallen into deep financial distress to file for debt relief, or to prove the higher education institutions they attended had intentionally misled them. Okay, this policy makes no sense at all. Why they want to punish people who got screwed by for-profit colleges, but welcome to the Trump regime. Of course, DeVos has connections, and we remember old Trump University. Okay, but we'll keep going here. On Thursday, a federal judge in Manhattan ruled that the largest of six lawsuits against the Census Bureau and the Commerce Department over the new citizen, citizenship question on the 2020 census can move forward. So that was some good news. HuffPost reported, based on applications obtained through the Freedom of Information Act requests, 
the federal government has issued more than three dozen permits allowing hunters to import lion trophies from Africa since 2016. And anyone want to guess how much these people have donated to Trump? I'm betting there's a correlation. The Washington Post reported Trump has yet to nominate a science advisor to lead the Office of Science and Technology. Every administration since Eisenhower has named a science advisor by their first October except Trump. But then again, Trump doesn't believe in science, so that all makes sense. Which also then ties into this next story. The Washington Post reported documents obtained by public employers for environmental responsibility show the EPA worked to discredit employees who sounded the alarm as they left the agency in 2018, excuse me, 2017. And then there's this one, another classic of authoritarianism and how unresponsible this regime is and, and just how inappropriate. On Tuesday, while addressing the conservative high school students at the Turning Point USA High School Leadership Summit, Attorney General, yes, say that again, Attorney General, the law enforcement, head of law enforcement of our entire country, Jeff Session, briefly joined students in chants of lock her up. Ay, ay, ay. On Thursday, Session said, I perhaps should have taken a moment to advise them that the fact you're presumed innocent until a case is made. Chants of lock her up are still popular at Trump rallies and conservative events. But take that in. The chief law enforcement officer of our entire country chanted with high school students, lock her up. This election was almost two years ago, people. Goodness. So this is also really unusual. But those of us who know Trump from before he took office, and my, I worked on Wall Street, so, and I traded bankrupt debt, so I knew Trump pretty well before this time and how, you know, how inadequate of a businessman he is and how little he knew about the economy. In the early weeks of the weekly list, and this is in the book, The List, Trump actually called Michael Flynn during the interim period before he took office to ask him questions about interest rates at 3 a.m. This is who he was asking Michael Flynn. So this is the guy who supposedly knows so much about our economy who is now tanking our economy with his trade wars and his tariffs. Trump told CNBC that the stock market gains since the election give him the opportunity to fight trade wars. Trump said, this is the time. You know the expression, we're playing with the bank's money. So this is how he views it, that the stock market went up in 2017. It's been mostly flat in 2018. But because it went up in 2017, that this is the bank's money, not the American people's economy for him to play with. Trump said, I would have a higher stock market right now. It would be 80% higher if I didn't do this. And again, just a reminder that the benchmark index is up roughly 4% in 2018. So let's talk about some of the reactions to Trump's unilateral tariffs. And again, I just need to accent the fact that this so goes against Republican Party orthodoxy. Their whole platform has been based on free markets. And the fact that they are largely silent about this is just unheard of and not normal. On Tuesday, Harley-Davidson announced Trump's tariffs will cost a company $50 million in profits this year and an additional $100 million in 2019, wiping out almost all of the company's 2019 projected profits. On Tuesday, Whirlpool's stock plunged 14.5%. 
the biggest loss since 1987, as Trump's tariffs caused the prices of steel and aluminum used in the manufacture of the company's products to substantially rise. And then on Tuesday, also, we talked about that quote that Trump said that happened at the Veteran of Foreign Affairs Convention in Kansas City. Trump told farmers there caught in his escalating trade wars to be, quote, a little patient, and they would be the biggest beneficiary of his policies. Trump told the crowd, stick with us. Don't believe the crap you see from these people, the fake news. Some veterans in the crowd then pointed, booed, and hissed at journalists at the event. And then Trump's famous line, which I need to repeat again, quote, just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. Again, invoking com comparisons uh, on Tuesday on social media to George Orwell's 1984 book. But I want to also propose um, some commonalities to Atlas Shrugged, because what Trump did on Wednesday, he said that the Trump regime will give $12 billion in emergency aid to the farmers caught in his trade war and is designed to help farmers facing tariffs in from China, Mexico, and other countries who are retaliating. The Trump regime will largely rely on a 1933 program called the Commodity Credit Corporation, a division of the Agricultural Department, created during the Great Depression to reimburse farmers for lost business. Some Republicans and farmers did speak out to say they don't want welfare, but again, this is a crisis of Trump's creation, and he's trying to keep things okay with that part of his voting base by giving them $12 billion of free money from our economy. Trump also tweeted, are we just going to continue and let farmers in our country get ripped off? China is targeting our farmers and being very vicious. Then on Wednesday, Automakers Ford, General Motors, and Fiat Chrysler scaled back their 2000 earnings as a result of Trump's trade wars uh, and the rise in their costs of raw materials. In that one day, on Wednesday, GM's stock fell 8%, Fiat Chrysler's stock fell 16%, and Ford's stock went under $10 and hit an intraday low. And this was the biggest plunge for these companies in years. On Wednesday, Reuters reported that the European Union is ready with a package of tariffs of $20 billion on U.S. goods if Trump imposes trade levies as threatened on imported cars. But then did, Trump did meet with the head of the European Commission uh, with, to, to discuss his tariff threat and declared that he wasn't going to impose tariffs yet and it was a very big day for free trade and fair trade despite the fact that apparently nothing happened at that meeting. It's just Trump backed off. But again, pay attention to what's happening to our economy and one person in charge in making all the decisions. Now I want to talk about what's happening with the migrant families. And again, we had a deadline this week that came and was not met. Let's start off from the beginning of the week when The Guardian reported that because of Trump's zero, pol zero tolerance policy, that there's so many lawyers that need to meet with their clients that they've set up what's called pop-up dungeons in the basement of federal courthouses, in this case in San Diego, to have lawyers meet with their migrant clients. They have three hours to introduce themselves, discuss why their clients 
cross the border and explain the intricacies of plea deals and misdemeanors before their clients are herded into court for mass hearings. On Monday in a court filing, the Trump regime said 463 migrant parents separated from their children have already been deported and said the number is still under review, meaning it could go higher. Texas Tribune reported in court filings, hundreds of migrants describe inhumane conditions in federal custody, including cramped cold conditions and tearful separations of children and parents. Migrants also describe rotten sandwich meat turned green and black, drinking water that smells like chlorine, and being told by border agents, quote, they don't want stupid people like me here bothering their country. On Tuesday, the Justice Department, here we are, Jeff Sessions again, instructed U.S. attorneys in an agency-wide email not to, use, not to use the term undocumented immigrants, and instead to refer to someone illegally in the U.S. as an illegal alien. In 2013, the Associated Press Stylebook changed its terminology to not describe a person as illegal. Only actions can be illegal. The Department of Justice said the goal is, quote, to clear up some confusion and be consistent in the way we draft our releases. So this is another step in the Trump regime's efforts to dehumanize these people. They're illegals as opposed to undocumented, which fits into their whole paradigm that if you don't want to come here illegally, if you come here illegally, you can expect what happens to you and expect terrible things to happen to you when we're not accountable. Some other shocking stories this week. The Nation reported a six-year-old girl from Guatemala separated from her mother under Trump's zero-tolerance policy was sexually abused while at an Arizona detention facility run by Southwest Key Programs. The girl was forced to sign a statement confirming that she understood it was her responsibility to stay away from her abuser and was instructed to, quote, maintain my distance from other youth involved. On Wednesday, PBS reported on 100 pages of testimony provided in court. Migrant parents said they were pressured by immigration officials to sign forms waiving their reunification rights in a, quote, coercive and misleading manner. On Thursday, the Trump regime said in a court filing they had reunited 1,442 families with children aged 5 to 17, and that's out of 2,551. They said an additional 378 children have already been released under appropriate circumstances. Of the 711 still in government custody, the regime maintains that it could not or should not have reunified all those children because their parents were deported or declined to be reunified or have criminal histories. So again, this is Thursday, 711 of 2,551 were still not united with their parents with a court deadline Friday. On Thursday, BuzzFeed reported 123 asylum seekers have been held at a federal prison in Sheridan, Oregon, many of whom are Sikhs or Hindu and are being denied religious freedom in terms of religious items and time and space for prayers. So that's just, again, how we're treating people that are here seeking asylum. So on Friday, the New York Times reported on children left behind after parents were misled and deported. 
One father from Guatemala said, the official told me, sign here and you'll be deported together. He was deported alone. So Friday came and we were where we were on Thursday. 711 children are still in custody. 431, again, are parents who have already been deported. 120 have parents who the regime claims have waived their right to reunification, which again sounds kind of strange to me, and given the way they coerce and pressure, again, suspect. 79 have parents here who have not been found. 94 have a parent whose location is under review, whatever that means. And 76 have a parent who raised a red flag, as opposed to the child abuse that's happening in detention centers, but yes, somebody's parents raises red flags. The Trump regime told the court Friday that they had met the deadline, saying that the 711 of 2,551 children are, quote, not eligible to be given back. Also, remember from last week, of the 107 children under age five that were set to be united, only 57 out of 103. So, and again, another 46, almost half of those children also have not been reunited. Away from the case that in San Diego that set, set the deadline, the Trump regime continues to face immigration lawsuits across the country and there's a number of new ones popping up, including a case in Seattle filed by 17 states on family separation and how the government handles claims for asylum for children. A federal judge in Los Angeles also said she would appoint an independent monitor to evaluate conditions for migrant children housed in border processing facilities. Advocates say children are being medicated for convenience. So these atrocities continue. Our judicial system seems to be the only thing that is holding back from Trump getting away with this without any sort um, of accountability. Our legislative branch, I heard some senators and Congress people being interviewed this week, and they are totally deferring to our judicial branch. They've yet to hold hearings or do anything about these atrocities and the fact that almost a third of children that were separated through Trump's zero tolerance policy have yet to be unified. So that will continue. Now I wanna talk about the happenings relating to Trump and potential collusion and other things that potentially could end his time in office early. We started the week and Trump released this or allowed the government to release Carta Page's FISA application and their renewals. And those came out late Saturday, 412 pages. I believe that Trump thought he could spin this as exculpatory. And maybe again, with the people that are buying his version of the truth, that did come through. But some of the realities of what was actually in these FISA applications, um, some of the quotes from it, it was heavily redacted. And, and just to put it in perspective, experts were you know, sounding alarm bells that this is so not normal to have a Pfizer application released under Freedom of Information Act and how that could hurt intelligence going forward in finding people to cooperate with us and work with us and, and to do the work that U.S. intelligence requires because something like this possibly exposes our sources and methods and therefore people that are helping U.S. intelligence and keeping us safe. So this is kind of unheard of and not normal that uh, that a Freedom of Information Act 
request under FISA would be honored. Lawfare in an article said long-term programmatic, excuse me, programmatic consequences long after we're finished with Trump of allowing this request with highly confidential FISA warrants. So what we could see that was not redacted were some interesting lines in the application. The application says Page was, quote, the subject of targeted recruitment by the Russian government to, quote, undermine and influence the outcome of the 2016 U.S. presidential election in violation of U.S. criminal law. The application also revealed that Page, quote, has been collaborating and conspiring with the Russian government. And efforts are, quote, coordinated with Page and perhaps other individuals associated with Trump's campaign. On Sunday, Page told State of the Union, because he's never shy to go in the media, that this was so ridiculous and misleading and a complete joke. He said, oh, I sat in on some meetings, but to call me an advisor to Russia, I think it's way over the top. And of course, Trump tweeted falsely without evidence that he was vindicated somehow by releasing these applications, tweeting the warrants are ridiculously heavily redacted. Trump also tweeted that there is, quote, little doubt that the Department of, and he put this in quotes, justice, uh, and the FBI misled the courts, putting the word justice in quotes. Trump called it, it a, a witch hunt rigged, a scam. Trump also tweeted without evidence that his campaign was illegally spied on for political gain of crooked Hillary Clinton and the DNC, adding Republicans must get tough now in a legal scam. And he quoted somebody, two people on Fox News, as he often does, saying this is so bad and they should be looking into the judges who signed off on this. Interestingly enough, the four judges who did sign off on the FISA warrants were nominated by Republican presidents and then appointed to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court by a conservative, the Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts. So the redacted warrants also dispelled claims by Devin Nunes and Trump that there was not proper disclosure that the dossier author, author Christopher Steele was paid also by Democrats. Not only is it in a footnote, but in the documents released on Saturday, there's also a full page in the application itself. Later on Sunday, Trump tweeted, Obama knew about the Russia, Russia before the election day. Why didn't he do something about it? So again, trying to blame Obama and somehow trying to make hay of this FISA application, which only hurt Trump. But there we go, the two sets of reality. And so while Trump has continued to call it a witch hunt, one of the witches that were caught, Butina, more information came out with her. We've been talking about her the last week, about how she was arrested and indicted for acting as a spy for Russia. The Washington Post reported, according to her testimony in the Senate in April, Maria Butina received financial support from Russian billionaire, here's a new name, Konstantin Nikolov for a pro-gun rights group in Russia from 2012 to 2014. Nikolov's fortune came from port and railroad investments in Russia. And he's also on the board of American Ethane, a Houston company showcased by Trump at an event in China last year. 
he claims he has not met Trump. Nikolov's son, Andrei, who studied in the U.S., volunteered for Trump's 2016 campaign. Nikolov was spotted at Trump's Hotel D.C. during Trump's inauguration in January 2017. But he never met him, barely knows him. Maybe he's a coffee boy. Anyway, uh, Nikolov's net worth matches the description in the court filings last week for the billionaire funder of Butina's activities. Nikolov, Nikolov also invested in silicone companies, including Grabber, uh, and that is along with Repik, another Russian pharmaceutical executive who attended Trump's inauguration. There were more people that were Russian gazillionaires and pharmaceutical executives and other executives at, at Trump's party than we can, you know, shake a fuck at. But luckily, we know who's interviewing them all and looking at them all, Robert Mueller. Also on Sunday, Reuters reported that in April 2015, Butina traveled to the U.S. with Torshin, who was then the Russian Central Bank Deputy Governor, for separate meetings with Stanley Fisher and Nathan Sheets. Fisher was then Federal Reserve Vice Chairman and Sheets a Treasury Undersecretary. The meetings were arranged by the Center for the National Interest, a D.C. think tank supportive of improving U.S.-Russia relations. So look at all the access this woman who is now being tried as a spy for Russia had to our government. On Thursday, ABC News reported that one of the friendship and dialogue dinners with influential Americans that Butina held in February 2018 was with Dana Rohrbacher. Rohrbacher also attended a meeting with Butina that she helped to arrange two years earlier in St. Petersburg, Russia, that also included her mentor, Torshin. On Thursday, this is continuing, Russians, Russia's foreign minister demanded Butina be released, saying her arrest is motivated solely by motives of U.S. domestic and foreign policy, and therefore she is a, quote, political prisoner. So they're raising the stakes there. In other things that are happening related to the Mueller investigation, so sort of stepping back, we first have laying the table, the 25 indictments by Mueller's team, sort of laying the case for the fact that Russia did, in fact, interfere in our election. And last time, in the last two weeks, that it was Russia military intelligence, GRU. We then have, in the last, in this week and last week, Butina, a Russian, being tried for spying. And we have news thanks to Trump, that Page was potentially cooperating along with other people in Trump's campaign with Russia to impact our 2016 election. So just keep in mind the bigger picture building around us. On Monday, in a series of tweets, Trump called for the end of the Mueller probe because of the release of Carter Page's FISA applications claiming the, quote, fake dirty dossier was the responsible, was responsible for starting the totally conflicted and discredited Mueller witch hunt. First of all, the dossier was not why the FBI originally got the FISA applications for Page. They're mentioned in it, but it was not the rationale, so that's a lie. Uh, but again, Trump is trying to close down the Mueller probe. Trump again cited people on Fox and Friends for misconduct by the FBI and the Justice Department and that the dossier was used to get the search warrant and therefore uh, the whole ho the whole 
Mueller probe is, quote, a fraud and a hoax designed to target Trump. Again, all based on misinformation and lies. On Monday, the Wall Street Journal reported at a briefing the, Justice, the Department of Homeland Security for the first time publicly revealed that last year, Russia hackers got inside the control rooms of U.S. electric utilities where they could have caused blackouts. DHS said on Monday that some companies may still not know that they have been compromised because the attackers used credentials of actual employees to get inside utility networks. Their goal is to be disguised as employees. Hackers stole confidential information, such as how utility networks are configured, what equipment was in use, and how it was controlled. They familiarized themselves with how the facilities were supposed to work. And so they're still in there and invisible. So again, the importance of this story, Trump continues to deny Russia hacking. He continues to not want to do anything about it. It's not only our election that's in peril. Russia could potentially take down our electric grid, including on election day. On Thursday, again, in the fake hoax, on Thursday, the Daily Beast reported that Russian's GRU intelligence agency, the one that hacked the 2016 election, uh, actually tried to hack Claire McCaskill, a vulnerable, a vulnerable Democrat, as she began her 2018 re-election campaign. McCaskill has been highly critical of Russia, and she was targeted by Russia. She said in a statement, while the attack was not successful, it's outrageous that they think they can get away with this. I will not be intimidated. Putin is a thug and a bully. So not only do we know for a fact that candidates running for office in 2018 have been potentially targeted by Russia, we knew from not only Claire McCaskill, but also in last week we talked about at the Aspen conference, the, an executive from Microsoft saying at least three um, people running in 2018 were potentially targeted by Russia. Not only do we know that they are also potentially in our electric companies where they could cause blackouts, but then we have Trump, who, again, on Tuesday, offering no evidence, tweeted, quote, I'm very concerned that Russia will be fighting very hard to have an impact on the upcoming election. They will be pushing very hard for Democrats. That was a new theme he started this week. He said it multiple times. Uh, Putin actually acknowledged that he wanted Trump to win during the Helsinki summit, and we also know that they're hacking at least one Democrat that has been identified this week. But Trump's new storyline is it's a rigged election coming up and that Putin is helping Democrats. How we get from point A to point B, who knows? Um, and again, Putin had said in Helsinki when he was asked if he wanted to help Trump win, yes, I did, yes, I did. Rachel Maddow this week reported that although that was a question and answer, that it was not in the White House transcript. There was some confusion about that this week. The Washington Post also ran a story that there might have been two different translation lines in different sides of the room. But bottom line, as we got to the end of the week, the White House was forced to change the transcript to reflect the fact that Putin was asked whether, by a question by Reuters, did you want President Trump to win the election? And did you or any of your officials help him do that? Putin said, quote, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay. But Trump says he's 
helping Democrats. Again, that's the new party line. So this was interesting. On Monday, we found out that Cohen has been recording Trump, and we got to hear one of those recordings. Uh, Tuesday, Cohen's attorney, Lanny Davis, gave CNN a copy of a recording of Cohen and Trump discussing how they would buy the rights to Karen McDougal's story about the alleged affair Trump had with her years earlier, which, by the way, Trump has denied. But he was going to buy the story. They discussed whether they were going to use cash or checks. But again, this happened within months of the election. On Wednesday, the Washington Post reported the release came as a surprise to prosecutors handling the Cohen case. Former prosecutors uh, found it off that someone angling for a plea deal would make potential evidence public. Inside the White House, Trump reportedly raged about the release. Wednesday morning, Trump tweeted, quote, what kind of lawyer would tape a client? So sad. His surrogates have also been attacking Cohen's reputation, in addition to Trump, Rudy Giuliani especially. Sources say the government actually seized more than 100 recordings that Cohen made of his conversations on his iPhone with people discussing matters that could relate to Trump and his businesses. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported federal investigators are examining the year-long, years-long dealings of Cohen with AMI, that's the company that owns National Enquirer, owned by Pecker, Trump's close friend. The Department of Justice is investigating whether AMI, AMI at times acted like an extension of Mr. Trump and his campaign. Prosecutors subpoenaed, subpoenaed AMI on the same day in early August that the FBI raided Cohen. Investigators also subpoenaed AMI's Chairman Pecker separately and delivered a subpoena to AMI for information on the payment to McDougal. Again, the importance of this, Trump now is in this tape, is saying that he knew about this payment. If the payment was made and not declared as a campaign contribution, that is in violation of federal law. We also touched in the beginning on the emoluments clause, and this is another huge deal. On Wednesday, a federal judge in Maryland said he will allow plaintiffs to proceed with their case, which says Trump has violated the emoluments clauses, a little-known anti-corruption clause in the Constitution. This marks the first time in U.S. history that a federal judge has interpreted those constitutional provisions and applied their restrictions to a sitting president. The opinion says the Constitution's ban on emoluments could cover any business transactions with foreign governments where Trump derived a profit gain or advantage. Trump has not divested of his business empire. So that happened. And then later Wednesday, uh, Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan, Jordan who is now under investigation or should be under investigation but is mentioned quite frequently for a, a case coming out of Ohio State where he was an assistant wrestling coach and there was cases of a sexual assault going on with one of the doctors there. Supposedly, players are saying they told Jordan. Jordan did nothing about it, but yet Meadows and Jordan are out there, Trump's top two allies in the House. They filed articles of impeachment to oust Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the overseer of the special counsel investigation. Meadows, however, sidestepped a procedural move that could have forced the issue to a vote as the House prepared to leave for a five-week summer recess and will not return until September. On Thursday, Speaker Ryan firmly rejected the efforts to impeach Rosenstein, 
Later, however, conservatives said Ryan agreed to give the DOJ one last chance in August to turn over documents that lawmakers have subpoenaed. And again, this is part of this effort to get documents that will give Trump a sense of what the FBI has on him. Sort of like what happened with the Carter Page FISA warrant. These are all not normal things. And again, this is happening during this week as all these things are coming up that are potential to end Trump's time in office. Here's another one that came up this week on Thursday. Uh, Michael Cohen claims that Trump knew about the June 9th Trump Tower meeting. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, let's talk about this. Uh, on CNN, Cohen said, uh, CNN reported that Cohen said Trump knew in advance that the Russians were coming on the June 9th meeting and they were expected to give his campaign dirt on Hillary Clinton and was willing to make that assertion, uh, Cohen is willing to make that assertion to Mueller. Cohen alleges he was present along with several others when Donald Jr. informed Trump about Russia's offer on dirt on Hillary Clinton. Cohen claims Trump approved of going ahead with the meeting with the Russians. On Friday, Trump responded to Cohen's allegations tweeting, quote, I did not know about the meeting with my son, Donald Jr. Giuliani also continued to try to discredit Cohen saying he's not credible. And Trump lashed out on Cohen tweeting, sounds to me like someone is trying to make up stories to get himself out of an unrelated jam. Uh, he said he even retained Bill and Crooked Hillary's lawyer. Trump also repeated his false statement tweeting, the only collusion with Russia was with Democrats, adding the rigged witch hunt continues, how stupid and unfair to the country. I just want to note, this is an observation that's in one of the early weeks lists around the time of the June 9th meeting, that within 20 minutes of when we believe that meeting concluded based on the timeline that's been given out, Trump was tweeting about these emails from Hillary. He tweeted 20 minutes after the meeting asking Hillary about her 33,000 deleted emails. Supposedly that was under discussion at this June 9th meeting. So just backing up the importance of this. If Trump not only knew about this meeting, but approved of a meeting where his son, his former campaign manager, his son-in-law sat with Russians and tried to get dirt on Hillary Clinton from a foreign country, a foreign adversary, that is a violation of federal campaign law. So again, more trouble for Trump. And then just to make things even more interesting, on Thursday, the AP reported that Veselniska, that's the main Russian attorney that was supposedly there to, to discuss adoptions um, and promised, now we know, promised Donald Jr. dirt on Hillary instead, that she worked more closely with senior Russian officials than she previously disclosed. Scores of emails, transcripts, and legal documents obtained through Russian opposition figure Mikhail Cold, um, his London-based investigative group, portray her as a well-connected attorney. So just pay attention to that. More to come on that storyline. And then this is my favorite. Um, this came out as well, kind of quietly, the sort of the Al Capone angle. On Thursday, the Wall Street Journal reported Alan Weiselberg, a longtime bookkeeper for Trump, has been suspended subpoenaed to testify as a witness before the federal grand jury in the criminal probe of Cohen. It is not known as if he has appeared yet before the grand jury. 
Weiselberg has served as an executive vice president and chief financial officer at the Trump Organization for decades and has been described as the most senior person in the organization that's not a Trump. He is prized by Trump for his loyalty. He worked for Trump's father's Fred's real estate firm in the 1980s. And for years, at least through financial crises, Weiselberg prepared Trump's tax returns. So again, he has firsthand knowledge of all of this. He has also been linked to the payments made to Stephanie Clifford and McDougal and is mentioned in the recording released by Cohen this week where he says, quote, I've spoken with Alan Weiselberg about how to set the whole thing up. So this is a guy that knows where all the bodies are buried. And one of the things that I, we've talked about in this podcast is the Me Too movement could potentially take Trump down. Well, we know about just these two women so far. Avenatti came out later this week and says he has three new clients. But this bookkeeper has all the goodies. He knows where all the payments were made for years and years and decades. So to me, that is just such a big development this week that he was subpoenaed and is testifying. Also on Thursday, the New York Times reported that Mueller's team is examining Trump's tweets and negative comments about Sessions and Comey as part of a wide-ranging inquiry into possible obstruction of justice. Mueller's team has told Trump's lawyers they are examining the tweets under a section tampering with a witness, victim, or informant, suggesting that they may be investigating Trump for witness tampering. Investigators want to interview Trump about tweets he wrote about Sessions and Comey and why he's continued to publicly criticize Comey and McCabe, another possible witness against him. So lots and lots happening this week. And even with all of those, the little punchline is, guess who starts trial next week? Manafort, Paul Manafort, the guy that got the coffee and was also Trump's campaign manager, including the time during the RNC convention when the platform changed. Um, on Monday, the U.S. District Judge Ellis delayed the start of Manafort's trial until July 31st, which is this coming Tuesday. Uh, but they did start meeting with jurors this week as scheduled. The jury will consist of 16 people. The judge also granted immunity for the five witnesses requested by Mueller. We know who they are now. James Brennan, Donner Duggan, Connor O'Brien, Cindy Laporta, and Dennis Rieko. Now, two of those names ring a bell. Two of the witnesses, Brennan and Rayco, worked at the Federal Savings Bank in Chicago, the bank led by Stephen Koch, who gave Manafort a $16 million loan, which was a significant portion of the bank's capital. If you need uh, reference, check the weekly list on the weekly list website. Um, his last name is C-A-L-K. Mueller's team asserts that Kalk knew Manafort submitted a fraudulent loan application, but approved it anyways because he wanted to be appointed by Trump as Secretary of the Army. So again, watch for Manafort's trial coming up this week. We know that on the witness list set to appear uh, is Gates, who was a part of Trump's campaign, a senior member of Trump's campaign, and his inauguration committee and who is now cooperating. Also Ted Devine, who was part of Bernie Sanders' campaign and is a longtime operative on the Democratic side, will also be uh, a witness called. Mueller put in for 35 different names on Friday. So 
one slight sign of hope here, and that is that Republicans this week started to stand up to Trump a little bit. With all this stuff I've been talking about and with Helsinki last week, Trump took a major hit in the polls. For a while, he had been in a little land of nirvana, thanks in part to our media and the great news coverage they gave him for negotiating with Kim Jong-un, which we're going to talk about next. But the Republicans now were a little more tepid on him this week, and I think it's because his poll numbers are starting to drop. On Tuesday, Quinnipiac showed that Trump's approval dropped back down to 38%, lowest it's been in a while, 58% disapproved, so net negative 20% approval. That compares to 43%, 52% in June. So that was negative 9%. So he's lost 11 points in one month. Interestingly, just 31% of women approve of Trump, 64% disapprove. Trump is really losing his sway with women voters. Um, his remaining base seems to be largely white male high school educated voters. Voters believe 51 to 35 that Russia has compromising information on Trump. That's astonishing. 51% of Americans, more than half, believe that Russia has compromising information on Trump. And 68%, according to Quinnipiac, are very concerned or somewhat concerned about Trump's relations with Russia. Uh, and this, another poll by NBC News and Maris seems to find similar results, which would be even more troubling for Trump because these are in the Midwest states that he is counted on as part of his base. Michigan, in terms of approval, now gives Trump 36% approval. Minnesota, 38%. Wisconsin, 36%. Also in those states, the majority do not believe Trump deserves to be reelected. In Michigan, just 28% believe it in Minnesota, 38%, and in Wisconsin, 31%. So with that, this week, you started to see some semblance of a pulse with the Republicans speaking out. Gowdy told Fox News, it can be proven that Russia is not our friend and they try to attack us. Marco Rubio tried to push forward a bipartisan bill called Deter Act, in which the DNI would have a period of time after the 2000 election to determine if Russia tried to hack our election or interfere in any way. And if they did, sanctions would automatically kick in. McConnell actually said this week he would consider bringing that to the floor. We'll see if that happens, but just interestingly. On Wednesday, uh, Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo, testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to talk about Trump's meeting with Putin and with Kim Jong-un. Uh, Pompeo was defiant and sparred with, interestingly enough, both sides, which is something that we haven't said since Trump took office. The Republicans went after him, too. Ahead of his testimony, knowing Pompeo would be grilled on Crimea, the State Department issued a declaration stating that the U.S. rejects Russia's annexation of Crimea and calling on Russia to end its occupation. In three hours of testimony, Pompeo dodged questions from frustrated senators on both sides asking for more information on Trump's meeting with Putin. Pompeo said presidents are entitled to have private meetings. Committee Chair Bob Corker, a Republican, said senators have serious doubts about Trump's foreign policy, saying the White House is making it up as they go and intentionally creates distrust in institutions like NATO. That's a Republican. 
Bob Menendez from New Jersey said the takeaway is that the regime is increasingly not transparent and said on North Korea, we have no agreement on anything. Pompeo said North Korea has a different definition of denuclearization. Yes, apparently so. But just interesting that some Republicans are speaking out and that they were attacking Pompeo. Because our foreign policy is a mess. Uh, on Sunday, the Washington Post reported that since Kim Jong-un's summit with Trump, which he got such great media for, the North Koreans have canceled follow-up meetings, demanded more money, and failed to maintain basic communications with the U.S. Even as Trump told the media last week, discussions are ongoing and they're going very well, North Korea maintains a testing facility Trump would, said would be destroyed and is hiding key parts of its nuclear program. Trump reportedly has vented his frustration to staffers over lack of progress as North Korea fully engages in the same time with South Korea and China. Trump said Russia would help, but UN Ambassador Nikki Haley said Russia is abetting illegal smuggling by North Korea. And then on Sunday night, just out of nowhere, because Trump viewed this as a way to change the subject, most likely, Trump responded to Iranian President Rouhani, who had made a somewhat threatening statement against the United States in a tweet with all capital letters saying, never ever threaten the United States again, or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. Trump added, we are no longer a country that will stand for your demented words of violence and death. Be cautious. The threat notably was similar to those he made to Kim Jong-un, who has now like owned him since that summit. On Monday, Bolton doubled down on Trump's threat in a statement to reporters, uh, saying that if, Trump, if Iran does anything to, at all to the negative, they will pay a price like few countries have ever paid before. What the hell that even means, who knows? On more foreign foreign policy, on, to on Tuesday, Reuters reported that Kremlin, the Kremlin was reticent on the idea of a second summit in Washington, D.C. Uh, Kremlin aide Yuri Ushakov suggested that the two could possibly meet at the G20 in Argentina in late November instead. On Tuesday, CNN reported White House, and this is just you know more news on transparency, that the White House has suspended the practice of publishing public summaries known as readouts of Trump's phone calls with world leaders, breaking a longtime president of both parties. Trump has had at least two calls with foreign leaders in the last two weeks, including Tur the Turkey's President Erdogan and the Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. The calls were first reported by foreign media. So basically now Trump is having calls, having meetings, without informing anybody about what is being said and done. And then because of that, that gives then the foreign media and the countries he's speaking to the ability to spin what was discussed and use it for their own purposes. On Wednesday, Bolton announced that Trump will postpone the second summit with Putin until next year, saying Trump believes the second meeting, quote, should take place after the Russia witch hunt is over. Bolton said that. The man who is head of our NSA, who is supposed to be securing our election or have some role in our security. 
Republican leaders, Speaker Ryan and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell have said Putin will not be welcome for meetings in Capitol Hill, which customarily occur when a foreign head of state visits Washington. And then as all this was happening and after playing coy on Tuesday and saying, we don't want to come to your meeting on Friday, Putin said he's ready to come to Washington, D.C. And not only that, he's invited Trump to come to Moscow, saying his invitation, he has this invitation already. I told him about it, according to Putin, adding there has to be necessary conditions. It's not clear when Trump first invited Putin because we don't know anything still that happened in that two-hour meeting. Details of their meeting remain unknown. On Friday, Press Secretary Sanders said Trump is open to visiting Russia if Putin extends a formal invitation. Of course he is. Our foreign policy is a mess, and it's being conducted by one man. Pompeo doesn't know what's happening. His NSA doesn't know what's happening. DNI Coates doesn't know what's happening. One man is, ha- is making the decisions, is having the conversations. We don't have readouts. The alarm bells have to be ringing. So in concluding, I want to talk about everyday racism, the section that we do every week, because while all of these alarming things are happening, the fabric of our country is also changing. Not only what's happening to the migrant children and parents and the way they're being mistreated and their white rights not properly protected, Um, A report by the nonpartisan Brennan Center found that nine states with a history of racial discrimination are aggressively removing voters from their roles. Following the Supreme Court decision, we talked about allowing purges in Ohio in week 87 in episode seven of this podcast. So note to self, everybody should check your registration and make it live. Nine states, nine red states did a massive purge of voters ahead of the 2018 election. Fox News reported that several Republican candidates who are Nazis and anti-Semites have won their primaries. The the headline in Fox was actually Republican candidates snuck through, to which I responded, no, they didn't sneak through. They were voted through by Republican voters and through their primaries. And it's created a headache for the Republican parties, because even by their standards, these people are neo-Nazis, anti-Semitic, deny the Holocaust, say horrible things about Jews and people of color and all the rest. And this is today's Republican Party. More everyday racism. On Monday, uh, hundreds of protesters, including many women dressed in red cloaks and white bonnets, Uh, Reminiscent of The Handmaid's Tale, and that's this week's picture, protested Vice President during his visits to Philadelphia. On Thursday, two radio hosts in New Jersey were kicked off the air after calling the nation's first sixth attorney general turban man. On Tuesday, Representative Maxine Waters' offices in Los Angeles were evacuated after receiving a package labeled anthrax. The item was determined not to be of danger. But think of all the times we've talked about Trump threatening Maxine Waters in our weekly list. And now just some odds and ends to close out with. Uh, AP reported that Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, suggested at a roundtable discussion in 1999 that the 8-0 ruling in 1974 that forced Nixon to turn over Watergate tapes may have been wrongly decided. And we wonder why Trump picked this guy. 
On Friday, at a community forum in West Hollywood, Michael Avenatti claimed he's now representing three additional women who had relations with Trump and were paid hush money prior to the 2016 election. Vice reported a woman who has been in prison in Thailand, uh, Anastasia Vashu, excuse me, I'm going to mispronounce her last name, Vashu Kevek who claims to have hours of tapes of conversations with Oleg Deripaska, will give Deripaska the tapes. Purportedly, she's tried to speak to the FBI, and the FBI has tried to speak to her, but they have been rebuffed by Thai authorities. TMZ first reported that Kristen Davis, who is known as the Manhattan Madam, was subpoenaed by Mueller's team as part of the Russia probe. Davis worked for Roger Stone for over a decade, and the two are close friends. And then, interestingly, on Friday, Lori Stegman, a devout Republican commissioner in northwestern Oregon, became a Democrat, saying in a Facebook post, I cannot condone the misogyny, the racism, and the unethical and immoral behavior of the Trump regime. Stegman is an orphan and an immigrant and said, I feel stuck when she said, "I, I feel like I struck a nerve because so many people told me. That's what I'm feeling after she left the Republican Party. Um, and you're right, the Republican Party I joined has changed. And closing out the odds and ends with stories about Ivanka, who this week announced she's shutting down her fashion brand. A year after stepping away, supposedly from the business, for claiming she wanted to avoid the appearance of profiting off her father's presidency, which she was indeed doing, she has been criticized sharply for the hypocrisy of her brands being manufactured strictly overseas in countries such as Bangladesh, Indonesia, and China, where low-wage laborers have limited ability to advocate for themselves. Her brand has also faced consumer backlash and retailers, including Marshalls, Nordstrom's, TJ Maxx, and last week Hudson Bay Company, have stopped selling her products. Trump fans, however, bought her products to support her. Uh, But on Thursday, Axios reported Ivanka and Kushner plan to stay at the White House for a long time. They have gained power, eliminating their adversaries, including Bannon and Tillerson, and John Kelly is sidelined. And just something we've talked about, folks, do we live in a democracy anymore, or do we live in a land where one man is basically controlling our foreign and domestic policy and who plans to stay in power? Joke's about it now, but says we should do away with term limits, wants to stay in power. And in the early weekly list, it was mentioned that he planned to pass the baton, as we do in royal families, to Ivanka. And that seems to be the plan playing out before our eyes, according to Trump, that our our government has become the Trump organization, Trump surrounded by 20 sycophants that go along with whatever he says. And one person is determining everything that our country does, including wrecking our economy, which we talked about, our foreign policy all over the place, having secretive calls. But the good news, this week there were major happenings, and any one of the five items we talked about at the opening of the podcast could spell Trump's end, an early end, before the 2020 election. So with that, I want to wish everybody a good week. We'll be watching and keeping track of everything going on. And if you have a chance, go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you've been listening, and leave a rating and a review. And tweet about the 
Craft Weekly, the Weekly List podcast. Let your friends know about it. Spread the word. Until we meet again next week, thanks for tuning in.